This is Ivarianax, and this is The Candid Frame. Stories of the West decades-long war and conflict in the Middle East rarely make the front pages of newspapers and magazines anymore. If anything rises to public attention nowadays, it usually has more to do with political posturing than the long-term effects of conflict, not only on soldiers, but the countless number of people for whom war is a painfully palpable thing. Thankfully, there are photographers like Canadian Louis Pelou, who has made it his mission to tell the stories that are too easily lost amidst the endless drone of a 24-hour news cycle. In his work as a photojournalist, including several stints in Afghanistan, Louis has strived to create photographs that make a difference, that do more than just serve as an illustration for an article. His passion was born by more than a desire to have an exciting career. The seeds of it were likely planted when he was just a boy, as his parents shared their own personal experiences of war. However, their stories, especially the more graphic tales, did not come easily. They didn't give up the information, the deeper part of the information. Early on, it was more used as lessons, like, you better finish eating everything on your plate. Do you know when I was young how my life was? I was poor. There was no food. What we did have, soldiers would come on patrol in our village and take away from us. Or the freedom, the guerrillas, the, the partisans would come and take it away. And then we had nothing. Then we had to go looking for food. It was more those kinds of stories. But the stories where they talked about traumas and actual horror, horrible things they've seen, those weren't told to me till after I'd covered Afghanistan. That's when I think my parents felt a little bit of an emotional space to not want to traumatize me because I think they were traumatized. And that's when the real stories came out. And, and they were in their 70s and 80s by then. And it was the kind of thing where it was like, oh, what, why didn't you tell me these stories sooner? You know, and I could really feel an empathy level that I had never really felt before. This personal documentary film, Kandahar Journals, captures the realities of war, but also the complexities that make such work a personal challenge, both physically and emotionally. It also reveals Louis' penchant for storytelling and his desire to create photographs that matter. That can be seen even in his earliest personal project documenting the work and lives of hard rock miners in northwestern Ontario and northeastern Quebec. While he had originally imagined it as a short-term project, it wasn't completed until 12 years later. I thought, one-month portrait project, amazing. Like an extended magazine assignment, you know. I don't care about money, get in my car, I'll sleep. I used to sleep in my Jeep in the parking lot because I couldn't afford a hotel. In the morning, the miners would come knock on the window of my Jeep. Like, it'd be all fogged up because I, you know, because of me breathing inside the Jeep and the time of year. They'd knock on the window and I'd wake up and I'd like go into the change room, jet change, go underground every day. So it's like living like the homeless guy out of my Jeep. But, you know, I love the craft. I was film, old school days. I'd be processing film in my mom's laundry, you know, so back at her house. So, yeah, I did it, and I I didn't know what I was doing. I, I had to learn technical stuff. Uh, I had the basics, but this is a whole, this is like going from, like, you know, the farm team to the professional league and skipping all the training in the middle. 
We'll talk to Louis about his time in Kandahar and the role that sound played before and after. And we'll discuss how his time as a DJ inspired his interest in social justice. Welcome to the Candid Frame. Louis, welcome to the Candid Frame. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. One of the uh, more interesting things uh, about your, your backstory is the influence of, of your family. Uh, mm-hmm. the, basically, the stories that were told um, by your parents, who were both born during World War II and experienced the, the war uh, as mm-hmm. as children, and I know that uh, also a book by uh, David McCullough, a famous um, yeah. war photographer, was a big influence. But but tell me about how those the images in that book and the stories that your parents told you really sort of led you to. To eventually want to tell stories that were related to, you know, the impacts not just of war, but but stories about working class people. The way this this kind of all came about is uh, was sitting at the kitchen table every night, and I would hear stories about World War II. And basically, I had to imagine them. Like, and and as a kid, imagining things like the reality of what the how I understand war now was very, very, very difficult. I think the first time I really started being able to imagine your experiences were through photographs and books. And uh, this was in, happened in the library. Actually, I started seeing photographs and I was mesmerized. I, I couldn't stop looking at books from World War II. And I think I was too young to understand, but there is definitely, especially hearing from my sister, who's eight years older than me, there's an obsession with it. Mm-hmm. I was obsessed at looking at f- photographs of war, images of war, including artwork, actually. I felt like it, it explained this thing I couldn't see and it explained my roots where I came from. Cause we all, we all spend our lives trying to understand who we are. I mean, some of the most famous quotes from even Shakespearean plays are about who am I Hamlet, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think that, uh, I started off very, very early connecting or trying to connect or understand something that is a part of what made me who I am. Yeah. I, my parents grew up under a dictatorship, Trujillo, in the Dominican Republic, mm-hmm. and getting them to talk about that time is impossible. You know, they talk about, ah, it happened, don't worry about it. And I kind of envy you a little bit in the fact that your parents were able to share those, share those stories with you. Because I know a lot of people who go through that kind of trauma are sometimes very mm-hmm. reluctant to share them, especially with their, with their children. Yeah, um... It, they didn't give up the information, the deeper part of the information mm-hmm. uh, early on. It was more used as lessons, like you better finish eating everything on your plate. Do you know when I was young how my life was? I was poor. There was no food. What we did have, soldiers would come on patrol in our village and take away from us. Or the freedom, the guerrillas, the, the partisans would come and take it away. And then we had nothing. Then we had to go looking for food. It was more those kinds of stories. But the stories where they talked about traumas and actual horror, horrible things they've seen, those weren't told to me till after I'd covered Afghanistan. That's when I think my parents felt a little bit of an emotional space to not want to traumatize me because I think they were traumatized. And that's when the real stories came out. And, and they were in their 70s and 80s by then. Yeah. And it was the kind of thing where it was like, oh, what? Why did you tell me these stories sooner? And I could really feel an empathy level that I'd never really felt before. Yeah. 
And I think they probably felt like you would understand, because I think that's a, a reluctance that a lot of people have sharing that, especially soldiers sharing their experience with people who have not been in the military, who have not experienced mm-hmm. combat. That, you know, they, part of it is they don't want to necessarily have to explain themselves. Again, I think me being a journalist, as much as there is a trauma within the lives of journalists, I, I in no way can compare to them being children. Like, mm. like my father, his father was arrested in front of him while a soldier pointed a gun at him at four years old. And then they took his father away at gunpoint and he wrapped himself around the soldier's leg trying to stop him from taking his father away. I, I, can't, I can't begin to imagine that experience. When I got to Afghanistan, we were in Kabul, and one of the stories you worked on, this was 2004. Uh, we were doing a story on Afghan refugees, and up through 2006, I covered different things to do with Afghanistan. And we got to a, I believe when this happened, it was 2006. We got to a, a ref, an orphanage, and we were waiting for someone to come get me and the writer to go get access to part of the orphanage. And this man had walked in while we were waiting to the compound and he brought his two children and our translator, they were maybe 25 feet away. Our translator started telling us what they were talking about. And he said, look, he's talking to someone at the orphanage. He said, look, I can't afford to keep my kids anymore. I have to leave them here. And the children like wrapped themselves around his leg and they're like, please don't leave us here. Please don't leave us here. And he was like, I'm sorry. And he started crying and, and it, I could not photograph the scene. I just felt like it was just, there was something going on there that, was so deeply traumatic and personal I was just going to add to their trauma so I chose not to photograph that scene and it was it was heartbreaking and I think that those are really important stories to know about and share because I think that the world is so interconnected and always has been that whether it's online interconnected now Mm -hmm. or oral stories like that these traumas are passed on and they are shared in every country in the world yeah it must have been I don't know if you can tell me or if not, but witnessing that mm-hmm. it may have like made you think about that experience of your your own father and how, and to witness this and, and imagine that that's just what your father went through. Yeah, and I think what happened is that I, I started looking around. More was on the streets where kids were playing because one story my dad told me was when he got me a soccer ball. He said. I'm really glad to give this soccer ball. When I was a kid, we used to take our socks off and put one sock into the next sock, into the mm-hmm. next sock until, you know, it was this ball of, so- I can't imagine who had to put the sock back on. That was the outer, <laughs> you know, he put it on, he could fit three of his feet in it. And it, and I love the laughter part of it, but then they play with bare feet or put their shoes back on with no socks. And I'll tell you, Judging by the descriptions and the photographs I've seen, those are not the shoes that you could wear without getting like blisters for playing mm-hmm. without socks yeah. in the winter in Italy. And uh, it's just one of those beautiful moments of that's tragic and humorous and full of joy all at the same time. And I think that it, it's those stories. And that's when I was on the streets of Kabul. I was like, wow. Is that what my dad looked like? Because you know, they, they were dirt poor. Mm-hmm. You know, it, Italy, it was pre-World War II. So my dad was born in 39. So by the time he started playing soccer, by the end of the war, just after the war, Italy was destroyed. The, the area where my father grew up in the northeast of Italy was the invasion and retreat and then followed by the attack route up into Central Europe to Germany from the invasion of Italy. So, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's something that I think we all should struggle with is that 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 
seeing or experiencing that joy and then seeing and experiencing that tragedy shows the full spectrum of, 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 of all the different emotions in between of, a, of the human being. And I think that that's what I started doing when I was there. I was like, wow, was, you know, did, did that one, I, did, I, I don't differentiate. I don't care if someone's Afghan, Italian, African-American, whatever, we're all humans for me. And that experience, I had a lot of, a lot of, a lot of emotion over it. It was very, very tough. Well, your, your dad was the one who encouraged you after you finished art school to turn your camera on, on the mining community, uh, mm-hmm. the hard rock, uh, which ended up being a project that you worked on for over, for 12 years. Tell me about the suggestion that your dad made and how that, how that project initially evolved. Yeah. Um, when I first went into art school, I thought I'm going to be the Renaissance man, like the Bauhaus art school. I'll be able to design, photograph everything. And then it quickly dawned on me that, you know, photography was what I enjoyed the most. I also enjoyed music that spoke about social political issues that spoke to me and those things kind of merged together and that that's where I existed best. And, you know, I grew up on like the clash, a lot of punk rock, socially conscious music, even folk rock and, and, and different old sort of sixties rock. As I was coming out of art school, my father was like, Oh, you know, so you're coming out of art school. That's a great hobby. But being an old generation, uh, Italian worker, he's like, but you need a real job. You can't make a living as a photographer. And I'm like, look, no, I'm going to be an artist. And he goes, you know, he, he relented. And my mom said, look, let him do what he wants or he's going to hate you. Let him follow his dream. If it doesn't happen, he'll come back to you. And so he, he went with it, let's say. But he would poke fun at me like, oh, you know, you're an artist. You don't have a job. And then uh, when I graduated, he said, hey, look, you know, since you don't have a real job, I have a project idea for you to photograph people with real jobs. And he was working up in a mining community. He was working in a marble quarry, but there's a mining community where they mine gold, like in gold in a traditional underground mine shaft type of mine that was like maybe 7,000 feet deep and very dangerous unions, labor history, social political history. A lot of immigrants worked there and had all these amazing layers. And I swear it was a great project, but I could not have taken the most difficult project ever <laughs> in every way, cost, logistics, Visually, hey, I, I may have just been an intern to Mary Ellen Mark, but being an intern and then actually being Mary Ellen Mark is two other different worlds. Mm. So basically, I just kind of jumped feet first in the fire. And I, I actually, I struggled like hell, but I don't really remember that as much as I remember all the great breakthroughs that I experienced and meeting all the amazing people that I experienced. So yeah, so I did that. That was my dad. And I, I thought, oh, okay. And then I, I thought, one month portrait project. Amazing. Oh, yeah. Like like an extended magazine assignment, you know, I'll, I don't care about money, get in my car, I'll sleep. I, I used to sleep in my Jeep in the parking lot because I couldn't afford a hotel. In the morning, the miners would come knock on the window of my Jeep. Like it'd be all fogged up because I, you know, because of me breathing inside the Jeep in the time of year. They'd knock on the window and I'd wake up and I'd like go into the change room, jet change, go underground every day. So it's like living like the homeless guy out of my Jeep. But, you know, I love the craft. I, it was film, old school days. I'd be processing film in my mom's laundry, you know, so back at her house. So, yeah, I did it, and I, I didn't know what I was doing. I had to learn technical stuff. I had the basics, but this is a whole, this is like going from, like, you know, the farm team to the professional league and skipping all the training in the middle. Yeah. Well, the, the technical stuff is relatively easy to pick up. But yeah. gaining the access, I can't imagine how people were looking at you, some young kid with a camera who says, I want to go down here hundreds of feet below the ground and take some pictures. How did you? Well, I think they, 
they thought I was insane. Sorry to cut you off. They thought I was insane, the miners. And the joke was, but I think they really meant it was, why would you want to photograph us? We're dirty, old, big, fat guys working on, I'm quoting someone mm-hmm. from that time, working in a mine. Why aren't you off in their mind? And this is their what they're saying. Why aren't you off photographing something more beautiful, like in a tropical country on a beach or, you know, this is this is sort of their idea. Like, why are you photographing us? Why are you coming? You know, in the winter, it's dark at six in the morning when you go underground. It's dark underground all day and you're in the mine. By the time you come up at four or five, it's winter. The sun's gone down. It's dark again. So you're like in darkness for three months. And you're going down an underground mine where you can get killed. And you're kind of really dirty, old, sort of crusty old miners I was photographing at the time. And they were just like... We're ugly. And whereas I thought, hey, this is my dad, the worker. This is my mom, the seamstress, and the fact that these are workers. You know, I grew up on, you know, the Farm Security Administration, you know, looking at those photographs. Mary Ellen Mark, I interned to Mary Ellen Mark for, for a whole summer. And I looked at, like, yes, Don McCullen and uh, Susan Mizellis, Dorothea Lang, all, all those photographers. And, and they made a huge impact on me. And I really believed, I really loved the idea of being an artist and because photography to me is an idea. It's a way where we transfer and share and use ideas to live every day, either by challenging something or learning something. And the kind of photography that I enjoy challenges me to think, you know, what are the, what do I believe in? What is wrong? What is right? What do I need to learn more about? What am I, what do, what do I need to challenge myself with? What other world do I need to imagine so I can understand people in some place else or in another situation? And that's what photography, like Gordon Parks, is phenomenal at that. So this is what was important to me. So where did you being a DJ fit in the timeline? Oh, you know, where did you find that information? (laughs) You digger. I dig, Uh, I dig, yeah. What's funny, because we're about to have a little reunion in Christmas, me and a bunch of friends are DJs. So I always loved music, and I think that might have came from my mom because she always played not the music I eventually got into. She played more traditional Italian music, whereas I'm playing like heavy metal and rap and alternative music. I think I just like music for the sake of, Hey, that sounds cool. And I like that. And I was too young to really figure it out. But I think what ended up happening is I guess when I got to high school, I discovered things like the clash, black flag, dead Kennedys at first. But I think the pinnacle record for that was public enemy it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. I heard that record. I'm like, whoa, this isn't just cool beats. That they actually they had phenomenal sound. Yeah. But there's like, they're mad. They're they're gonna call people out that none of us really thought of calling out, like Elvis. They're they're gonna say it, and it was new. It had energy, and I thought, and I'm into this, man. I felt like when you go to a club, there's all these different personalities and bars and clubs, all these different ideas, lots of artists and creative types of all kinds. And that for me was like the new Paris, you know, like the cafes in Paris where Picasso and the artists would meet alternative bars were that for me. And I just started thinking, well, I could really play the music I like. And it was about ideas, music as well, just like photography and any art is about ideas. And that's what music became for me. And it became another expression of my ideas. And also I just was interested in the creative process. Like, you know, technically a song is vibrating air. It's a bunch of different things that, Sound is vibrating mm-hmm. air. And how do you go from nothing to say, and I like classical music, say you go to Vivaldi's Four Seasons. How do you go from nothing to that? Violins, strings, cellos. How do you go from nothing to Led Zeppelin Four? 
I mean, how do you even start? And then there's the complexity of the language and the writing. And so that really interested me. And I am a terrible musician, by the way. Uh, I, I, I only passed grade nine music because a music teacher said that I was so horrible. He never wanted me to play again, yeah. that I, I had to promise that I would never take a music class again if he gave me a 51% to pass me through the class. Yeah. <laughs> he he was a great guy. I just I just was could not apply myself in music. It was photography. Yeah. So DJing again became this, and to this day I see several live shows a week. It, it is an experiential thing where people using an idea, you know, uh, music as an idea can take you somewhere else and teach you things. Yeah. It might be as simple as hey, I like to be in love, or hey, that is an injustice that we're going to fight. And I love that about music. And that's what I love about photography as well. So DJing became an extension. I still have DJ friends. That is my, it's funny. This is the first time someone asked me about this in a photography interview. That is my private little world. That's where I go escape. When I want to take a break from photography, I go online, I find a band, I watch them on YouTube and then it rabbit holes to other bands I've never heard of. And I start making little playlists and oh, I've seen bands where there's only like 10 people there. And it's the one thing that turns my mind off from photography and I can take a break actually. When you were in, when you were in Kandahar and in Afghanistan, did you listen to a lot of music to be able to get you through? Tons. Uh, and this is sort of the beginning of iPods, you know, 2006. I remember I had, there was this kind of iPod that you can only shuffle or go one after yeah, another. So if nice. you like mm-hmm. the song, you're like, where did it, it had no screen. You're be like, oh man, I think it's eight, uh, 20 more songs, you know? And it was like one, was it even a gig? I don't even know if it was a gig. I think it was like it five, was 12 K. I think it was crazy, five, man. Yeah. It was just like, okay, I got 20 songs on there. At least I don't have to carry the discman around with 10 CDs, you know? Or, hey, I go back to cassettes with Run DMC and the Ghetto Blaster. I'm old enough, you know, I'm 50, so. Yeah, same you know, here. I, I had one. <laughs> I, I, once in a while, I clean out, you know, I had to clean out my mom's basement from her house when she passed away, and I'm like, whoa, one of my mixed tapes, man. Oh, yeah, the dual, the dual I, I know I'm dating myself, but the two cassette tracks, you know, so you can oh, make totally, you record yeah. back and forth and mix your tapes and, yeah. Well, here, we're not dating ourselves anymore because the hipsters are bringing this all back. You go to some of these hipster stores, which I shop at too sometimes, turntables. There's vinyl at these stores. Mm-hmm. I'm like rebuying. I just bought an old Black Sabbath album reissued that my friend's uncle gave to me in the 80s when I first learned about Jimi Hendrix and Black Sabbath. Old vinyl, and it's like, I got to get a turntable with USB. That's the best part. That's, man. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. One of the things I, I wanted, we were talking about sound, and one of the things I was really, I was watching the, your documentary that you, that you uh, co-directed one of the things that was really vivid about it was the sound, you know, of the, the, the gunfire, the guys yelling. And I just, and, it, and you talk about it in how, and I think one of the soldiers talks about for a lot, a lot of the time, there's just nothing happening. And then there's everything happening, mm-hmm. right? And, it, and how sound is really something you have to tap into just so you can have a sense of what's happening or what you anticipate is going to happen, right? And I wonder what it's like for you to be in a place where you are so sensitive to sound and then you get back home and the sounds are sort of completely different. I know it's very jarring physically to go from Afghanistan to being in New York or Los Angeles, but with respect to sound, you know, what is that, what's that like to go from one environment 
where you're so sensitive to it, to another one where it's just all this sort of noise? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's, uh, again, uh, I love your questions. This is all new territory, and it's territory that I exist very much in. Um, what, when I made Kandahar Journals, the, the visuals come, it's a lot of hard work to do the editing and the mm-hmm. organizing, let's call it, or, or shoot visuals for the film. But the sound, I worked with uh, uh, an editor who really appreciated sound in the editing process. I learned a lot about the sound of war when I was making a lot of that video. I made, I shot a lot. I, I record a lot of audio. I, I, I learned how to aim a recorder like a camera at things that make sounds as well. And I worked with uh, uh, a sound designer who was pretty phenomenal. And Daniel Pellerin, he's in Canada. What we came up with is this term. We called it psychological space. And we used the sound in the film to parallel that visual sensory experience with the audio. And the audio would, would, the experiential side, would you see it? And then when you experienced it, would be from the sound. Mm -hmm. And the sound, if you take the film and take a notepad and write down when sounds happen, it's loud, quiet, loud, quiet, loud, quiet, loud, quiet. And it gives you time, the viewer, to experience in a very peaceful way, not having to go to the war, what it's like when you're in the war is that chaos and then that peacefulness. And we we specifically had a document, a word document for editing that we would time the chaos and and the quiet time because we would, or we would show someone something very, there's some very graphic moments in the film. We would show someone something and then we would give them some quiet time. And, And the actual composer, Manny, I, I, I would send him the craziest, I, and this all came from my DJ years, the craziest sort of watching documentaries on how bands had made film, uh, albums, I mean, is like a producer trying to inspire him. You know, think of what sound would be going on in your head after you see something like this. So I would, I would write things like, you're in a submarine and it surfaces in a desert and suddenly you look up and there's, you're in space and there's, you're, there's planets around you. And he's, I said, what does that sound like? I said, because you come back and it's that surrealness. Mm -hmm. I said, I don't want there to be any recognizable instruments like guitars or, or, you know, at times I was a little disparaging humorously, like no pianos, no depressing piano moments in the film. I said, I want the whole film to be a psychological experience. So that's what Manny constructed is. And that's what we worked on with the sound design is that, that chaos and that peace that were narrative elements throughout the arc of the film. As I put together the schedule of guests for next season, I'm a little bit overwhelmed by the countless number of photographers that I have to choose from. Some people I've just discovered, while others have been on my list for years. And as I think of the 52 slots I'm trying to fill, I feel an incredible responsibility to you. You see, I'm always trying to bring a diversity of voices and ideas to the show, while also providing stories that can encourage and inspire you, not only as photographers, but also as people. Because as much as I love talking about photography, 
there is something so special about people attempting to be their best, especially when faced with difficult and challenging circumstances. I think it's important to know that great photographers are made from more than just talent, entitlement, and money. In so many of the stories that we've shared over the years, it's, it's been about embracing a calling that just can't be denied. It may seem easy, and it often isn't, but the hundreds of photographers that we've spoken to demonstrate that it's always possible and that there is no singular way of getting there. And I want to keep doing it, and I could really do with your help to make that happen. We're working towards our goal of 100 new Patreon supporters, each of whom commits to a reoccurring donation of $5 or more a month. We're past the halfway mark, and your donations are going to make the episodes leading up to our 500th possible and special. So if you haven't already, please take the time today to become a Patreon contributor for as little as $5 a month. You've been thinking about it, but today is the day you do it. Thank you. You make a point in one, uh, one part of the film about listening when you hear bullets whiz by to get a mm-hmm. sense of what direction they're coming from, right? And, uh, and mm-hmm. I can imagine that just that mindset is absolutely necessary for survival. But, you know, when you come back home, turning that off, right, that transition is what I'm really sort of curious about. I know you may, probably never really thought of thought about it, but watching the documentary, it's something that really came to mind for me. Um, I think that what ended up happening is uh, over time, there are things that went away, experiences. I never really had any bad dreams. I was very, very lucky. Um, but there are moments that I, I still remember. And I think it's just me always trying to process them in a very healthy way of processing like there's this one battle I was in where a machine gun was firing right near me. I, I, that scene rolls through my head all the time. I understand it. I can manage it now. I never used to be able to manage that stuff as well, but now I do, I can manage it. And some things fade away and you're like, Oh yeah, you'll see a photo or you'll hear something similar or smell something and be like, Oh, that, you know, and I'm, I'm good at managing that. But I think that there are certain things that, Again, there's this one battle I was in where I remember this one sound of a machine gun firing that, you know, can repeat a few times a week in my head or a few times a day or not for a month, but it, it, it is there all the time. You talk in the film about some images that you made of a suicide bomber, and then mm-hmm. that was really sort of a critical moment for you in terms of how you not just chose to document, but in terms of how you, ex- your own humanity and and I wanted to explore that a little more. Why were you so moved by something so brutal to the point that you felt like it really should have shifted your the way you perceive something? Yeah, I, I, I think everybody, I, I want anyone listening or watching this to understand that there are a lot of bad things that happen in war zones. Some don't affect people. Some heavily affect people. And... and even the people who are affected can be affected in a lot of different ways. And some people can handle it and work through it. And some people can, and some people eventually do with the help of other people. I don't think I was ready for 
I thought I was, but I don't think I it, you know, shocks. Like when you think you're, you go somewhere and it's like, whoa, that's a head in the middle of the road and you can smell burned dead human. I think that there are some people that can have something in their mind that turns on and sometimes it's a survival or sometimes it's a, your mind's trying to process it and it can't. It's working real, it's working mm-hmm. overtime and it'll work and spin and spin and spin. And these are all, I'm using examples of metaphors. There's nothing actually spinning in your head, but thinking of it like a machine trying to work through something and it can't. And you're like, but that doesn't make sense. It's like, in some ways you're rendered almost to like a child where, you know, when your kid says, but why, but yeah, why? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it, it, and, and, it, and, it, and it comes down to that primal sense of survival and it comes down to the fragility of life where you're made to understand, wow, that why would someone attach a vest on themselves and blow themselves into a million pieces? And I think that that can create a puzzle that you can't put back together in your mind and, and you can stay frozen on that. And so for me, I think that I, I, I experienced this blown up suicide bomber in legs and sat in sounds of the flesh moving around as the police picked up, you know, they had his dead skin mask and they were moving it around. It, it was like the face had blown off the skull mm-hmm. and they're holding it beside like an ID photo of suspects trying to like compare like, Oh, does this look like this suspect we're looking for? And it was just, uh, uh, an experience that just the smell stayed burned in my mind for days. Like I could smell them that meat my mind is like, oh, I've never dealt with this before, and I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. So, um, after your first trip, you you mentioned in the film that you came back and you saw the press coverage, and mm-hmm. there was a big disparity between what you had witnessed and what you were seeing in magazines and publications here, and that spurred you to go to go back. Why, why do you think? there was such a disparity between what you were experiencing and seeing there and documenting with your camera and what was being seen in the American press or the Canadian press. Uh, yeah. I, I think that even in the, the internet age, watching things unfold and, and saying, Hey, this attack happened, this leader was assassinated. And then getting that back to us who are busy with all our stuff, like, you know, Say you're in California and I'm in Washington and maybe that's maybe not a good example, but I'm, I'm worried about my mayor. You're worried about your mayor and you've got your life in California. I got my life in DC. And by the time that that fil- that information I'm reporting on filters back to you through all those very relevant daily life things that are pertinent to you personally, uh, by the time that picture forms to what's actually happening can take some time. Mm-hmm. I think with a war, you add more complex layers. So basically with a war, there are inaccessible places. So, I mean, I'd say, you know, when we go to like 2008 Iraq, the idea of a group that in some ways people now perceive as more diabolical than Al Qaeda, you know, more absurd in, in, in sort of its, its application of terror than Al Qaeda seems incomprehensible but look what i i mean they're like been described as a doomsday cult and i think it's that you know there were people who were talking about they didn't know they were going to be called isis or what they were going to look like or what they were going to do Mm -hmm. but there are people talking about that that i knew 
that we're going to end up turning into a group like that that they were talking about it. And I just think it takes time for the events to turn into an actual reality. And I, I, I find that the disparity between watching things unfold and envisioning them when you're in the moment covering it and then it forming into uh, facts and ideas back home in people's minds in their daily life somewhere else where it's a completely different reality are usually a year or two apart. You know, so like I'm like in Afghanistan in 2006, I'm like, wow, wow, Taliban, Al Qaeda are really back here. Like they're really, you know, so much for going to Afghanistan and trying to capture bin Laden and throwing out the Taliban. They've come back and people only really understood back home what was really going on in the war from 2006 and 2008. And by 2008, there was something else kind of unraveling because there's just so much information now, especially with online. Like there's just. My God, I've had to unsubscribe from probably 30 different email subscriptions recently because I just, I started finding myself deleting my emails every day because I don't have time to read them, you know. I usually in the morning spend, I mean, all of us do. You go on Twitter, go through everybody. I've got a little thing I do every morning, a little session. I read the Washington Post, Quartz, some, some random Twitter stuff depending on what the headline is. And then there's not even time for me to read about, say, hockey. I love hockey. I just have to not read. I just don't have time anymore, yeah. you know. But what did you hope to, to do when you kept returning back that you felt like you hadn't succeeded doing in the, the first time around? Well, I don't think I really knew why I kept returning while I was returning. I just thought, hey, this is, I feel really emotional about covering this war. And all along it was, Getting that wisdom, I think my father was trying to impart on me, but couldn't truly share that trauma from the war. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it till later on. I realized it while I was making the film because Jennifer Bachewall, who's a, a phenomenal filmmaker, was my mentor. And she kept pushing me like, why did you keep going back? Why did you keep going back? And she kept pushing me in a way where it was like she was trying to help me make that discovery on my own because that is the best kind of discovery when you discover it on your own so that someone just showing it to you. you had, I had to work for it. And she made it really, really hard in a lot of different ways. The way she asked, the way she posed the question, and she kept posing the same question in different ways that forced me to come to that term. Unfortunately, by the time I really understood it, my dad had passed away. Mm. So it was like, I'm like, oh, oh, now I get what you're talking about. Gee, oh, man, you know, biggest regret in life is I couldn't say, dad, oh, I totally know what you're trying to teach me or explain to me, and I know you just couldn't put it in words or you didn't want to share it because you didn't want to traumatize me too, but I totally understand what you're talking about now. It, it, it's kind of bittersweet a little bit. I, I'm, I'm at peace with it now, but for a long time it was like, what are you trying to, you know, it's that, I think every daughter or son has that with one of their parents where they're like, look, man, I know what I'm talking, I'm smart. Look, I got a PhD or I don't, but I mean, just using an example. I've got you know, all these things don't try telling me that it's like that. I know I'm smart. And then you're like, wow, I'm not smart. You really, the wisdom experience in time is something you can't just learn. So you think a, a, a big part of that was just trying to understand your father? Uh, my father and who I, I was shaped by and who I am now. Hmm. Because, you know, as, a, as a, a, a small person, you have this mind that is a giant sponge that people just put put stuff into. And you may not totally understand it like, you know, when your father tells you a story about his best friend who was in a death camp, pretty much in the Second World War, you're like, oh, death camp. OK, 
you can like check the boxes of the facts of what a death camp is, but you don't understand deeply as an adult what a death camp is. I can imagine that someone's listening to it right now and going, you know, counseling is a lot cheaper and uh, (laughs) you don't have to have bullets flying at you. I I did counseling too. I I did about two years after the war. So I think everybody goes on a journey. I think that we're all on some kind of journey. Some people's journeys are within their own neighborhood. Hmm. I can't think of her name right now, but there's a phenomenal photographer. I believe she's Dutch. And she did a project in LA in, in one of a poor neighborhood. I don't like using the word projects, but let's just say it's a, a housing, like a government housing. Their section eight housing is what we call it here in DC. It's yeah. sort of, Lower income housing. That's the term I prefer. I think it's called Imperial Courts. Yeah, it was. Right, yeah. Yeah. This is a photo project. It is awesome. Now, so basically, she photographs these people many, many years apart and has them talk about the project online years later. Some of them are no longer with us. It is a very powerful project. So I think that I had to go to a war zone, but some people just go down the street or to the next building. I can't think of the photographer's name, but if you look up Imperial Court's photo project, it'll come up. It is a a fabulous, I mean, I think I'm like, there is very few times where I'm like, oh, do I wish I would have shot that project. That is a, I am like, that is an amazing project. That's commitment. So, you know, and I'm just using it as an example that sometimes your, your project's on the moon. Sometimes it's a concept, it's shapes, it's abstraction, you know. Uh, Right now, I have a project on the side building an archive of work and historical materials of abstract photography, uh, abstract photographs and surrealist photographs by women uh-huh. just because I got interested in it and I started it. It's called archive one nine two. And it's just something I have on the side that I can do outside of my own photography. But so, yeah, so I think we all have a journey and, and it can be close. It can be far. It can be in our minds. It can be physical it can be within ourselves, and, and, and we all have to go on it. Mine just happened to be in that case. Because when I covered Mexico, and which took place in parts of S- Southern California as well, in the drug war, that was me dealing with growing up in an Italian neighborhood that had a lot of organized crime with it. But I couldn't photograph it because my theme, my family get knocked off. So For the project that we initially talked about, the mining project, it took, you know, as I said, it took about 12 yeah. years. And you worked with an editor, John Morris, in terms of putting together yeah. an edit uh, of that. And, you know, he had a lot of experience in terms of editing and I'm wondering how that process oh, yeah. helped you to think about, uh, your photography when you go on assignment for other stories. So John Morris, I mean, I'll be honest, you know, I went to art school and I was kind of like, my girlfriend will like this. It's kind of like a little bit of a wild animal. Like I didn't want anyone to tell me how to do, or I don't want to be controlled or, I love art and I love, I like Don McCullen and I like, you know, painters. I, I can't pick one because like, you know, Hieronymus Bosch. I loved, I love those two worlds, but they could never be together, but, but they could actually uh, eventually. But, um, so I kind of just did my own thing. I did the miners project and I, I'll be honest, I'd never work with a photo editor. When I would work on the mining project, I was just shooting. I just thought, Take pictures. That's it. Just keep making a pile. I got offered a staff job at the Globe and Mail, Canada's national newspaper, kind of like the New York Times of Canada. 
And uh, suddenly I had six photo editors from none to six. And suddenly it was, I understood that I was thinking more like a gallery show that was a little more conceptual, less structured, less literal, not having to build sentences with pictures, so to mm-hmm. speak. As I worked there, I started learning things and they were, they were really important for me to learn. And that, that was the, the next phase of my, my growth is I had a, a director of photography, Aaron Elder, who was phenomenal. And Patty Gower, she was a fellow staff photographer who to this day I'm on assignment. I'm thinking, how would Patty have done this? This is a real problem. <laughs> like Patty is, there's a sep, there's Patty, the real photographer who teaches at Loyalist College, teaches photojournalism. And there's like the, the ghost of Patty, like, like a ghost limb in my mind. Like I'm thinking of, oh, cause she was so incredible. The way she would approach, you know, we had to do 400 assignments a year. Telling you right now, you run out of your bag of tricks wears out fast. Portraits, business portraits, assignments, red carpets at film festivals, sports. I mean, spot news, murder, everything. Foreign assignments. My photo editor, Aaron Elder, said, um, uh, do you have any personal projects you want to do? Because that's what we brought you in here for, to do something different. I said, well, I got this asbestos project. She goes, okay, and you got that miners project. Well, why don't we, you can shoot, it's yours, but we'll publish it in the paper. And I thought, oh, this is great. Like that Louis art world and the editorial world mm-hmm. were going to come together. Uh, it was going to be shown at uh, Visa Prelimage in Perpignan, the photojournalism festival yeah. in the south of France every year. And we, I got invited, they're going to show the work. And I thought, oh, oh what? this is incredible. So I thought, whoa, there could be like publishers that, I better make a book dummy. So I got on my my inkjet printer and I made a bunch of prints and I went to, at the time it was Kinko's now FedEx office and I got it bound and I was all exciting, excited. And I got to say, I just thought, Hey, this order is works. I was about to say my humorous side, cool. <laughs> so I, I get there and I'm, I'm like, wow, there's David Douglas Duncan. There's, you know, so-and-so and, and all these different photographers. And I was meeting people I'd only heard about. I had just taken a workshop with uh, uh, one, one of another one of my great, great, great mentors who is actually lives in San Francisco and teaches at Berkeley, who I took a book publishing workshop with. Ken Light Ken is Light. his name. I was his uh, lab assistant when I was in Berkeley. Ken, that guy. Yeah, he great. shoots two and a quarter. So it's like, mm-hmm. and he's, he's a mad scientist. You know, he's like, he's excited and loves photojournalists. Then he's mad about stuff. And it was like, this is like a hippie guy. That's, that's like, I'm the punk rock version of him. I want to be him. <laughs> So I get to Perpignan and not everything really sunk in what Ken taught me. So I get there with this book dummy and I'm showing it around. And I think people, it was more like greatest hits organization. So my friend goes, Hey, Louie, I heard you have this book dummy of these photos. Can I see? It? I said, yeah. And I, I, I give it to him and he goes, oh, I'm going to show my friend, John. And I, I knew who John G. Morris was. If someone said John G. Morris, like, you know, that book, get the shot. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, when he said, John, I was like, let's go get a beer. So we're at this patio, David Douglas Duncan walks by. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I'm living the dream. There's, there's John Stanmeyer's over there. I mean, I'm, I'm surround, I'm, I'm having a beer and I'm like, whoa, this is, you know, uh, this is incredible. Uh, this is what I always hoped for. So some time passes and I'm maybe two or three beers in on the patio. And uh, my, another friend comes and goes, Louie, I heard you have a book dummy here. Can I really take a look at it? But, you know, there's a publisher over there. I'm like, Oh, oh, I, and I look over and there was this 
elderly man sitting down with his legs crossed, flipping through my book dummy. And I'm like, oh, that's that John guy. My friend, open hand slaps me, like hard. And I'm like, what the hell? He goes, dude, that's John G. Morris. I'm like, John, who? He goes, and he goes, you know, Robert Kappa's photo editor, you know, New York Times, Washington Post. I mean, the most legendary photo editor ever. I'm like, and I, he could see I was terrified. And he goes, look, <laughs> we're going to go down the washroom, splash some water on your face. We're going to get a coffee at the bar. You can go talk to him. So I did that. It was like out of a movie. It was like dumb and dumber. Then I felt both. I go over and I said, oh, hi. You know, I was like very meek and mild. He goes, is this, is this your, your book? I said, yeah. He goes, there are some great photographs in here, but the order is terrible. And he said, do you mind if I like take the binding off, spread out the photos and do a little edit? Wow. And it was like, the humorous version of this, I would be, I crash all the glasses off the table, but we cleared the tables <laughs> as fast as we could. And he did this edit and it was like, whoa. And it all came to sort of critical mass. Like, oh, oh, this is, this is, I think what Ken tried teaching me, what my photo editors are trying to impart on me. And he just told me like 10 things that I used to edit to this day from Ken should get the most credit because he was like, he had like a, 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 a gentle stick he was hitting me with, you know? Mm. And, and just John just laid it out because he had to go, you know, he had to go home. Here we are in this patio and he's editing my book. And I credited him in the book. You know, it was incredible. I sent him a copy. I, I got the Critical Mass Photo Lucid Award and I sent him a copy of the book. And he said, thanks, you know, so many people I, I give advice to edits and they never send me a copy of the book. And I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. I took him out for dinner when I went back a few years later. That was awesome. Okay. You mentioned you know? 10, 10 things. Just give us two of those 10 things that he, that he shared with you that you use all the time. Photos that echo or reflect into the photo on the same page spread. So there's one photo in the book where there's a, a, a man working in a smelter mm -hmm. and, and there's the fire is glowing. And in the next picture, there's a guy, separate scenario. There's a union member standing by a doorway with this brick wall and there's a beam of light on his face and it looks like the smelter is lighting him, you know? So echoes, mm. echoes. Um, and, and contrast of scale, big things and small things. Big things and small things that, that flow and take you through the, the edit. Did you ask for two yeah. or you wanted more? Oh, if you can give me more, I'll take it. Starting your, your narrative three quarters of the way through at the beginning. Okay. Uh -huh. So it creates a mystery and then start back at the beginning and then explain it up to that point again and then take them to the final explanation, but only a partial part of the, of, just, of the three quarters. Just like writing a lot of movies start that way. Yeah. I think I'd have to pull the edit up now, but you know, contrast of work and play, you know, start underground. So it's a mystery. So the whole beginning of the book, you don't see any faces and you want to know who these people are, mm. you know, and he did it like, Oh yeah. You know, <laughs> we can laugh together. It's like, Oh yeah, whatever. You know, wow. okay. Well, yeah. well, okay. Thanks guys. I got to go now. I just sit there like with all these signatures, you know, this, the pieces of the book. And I'm yeah. like, Wow, that was phenomenal. That's priceless. So I came back and I did a re-edit. I, I had pretty much carried laser copies after that in my, my little, I had a small satchel camera bag. 
I would go to bars. We'd be like, oh, and we would do edit sessions. Like a very good friend of mine was Don Weber, you know, when he started out, he was in Toronto and we used to just have these, he called them the battle axe editing sessions. We'd sit down with four by six prints made mm. at CVS, you know, 10 cents a print. And we'd like, okay, six, six images only a hundred images. You know, we'd like the floor would be covered with prints all the time. He'd like, Oh, I, I can't, this is before iPhones. So you're like, well, I can't move these. This edit is awesome. I'm not going to remember. So you, before you move them, you had to like leave them on the floor and then write numbers on the back or stack them a certain way before you could take an iPhone. You know, now with the iPhone, you just take a picture of your reference point. But that for me is such fun. Next to taking the photographs is having those four by six prints and moving them around the table and coming up with an edit. It's oh, like yeah. rediscovering the photographs all over again. Yeah, and I think that what it taught me is to think backwards now into this reverse engineering I had to do because I didn't know what I was doing on the editing side um, and understanding your edit. So right now I'm just finishing off a project that started out as a Guggenheim Fellowship, then was kind of my own for a while, and then National Geographic bought the editorial rights. And let's just say it became a National Geographic project. And then the Pulitzer Center started funding part of it because they want to be part of the project over three years. It's like 150,000 photos, which is no indication of quality, but I can say that over three years, 150,000 photos with a digital camera, it's not really a lot when you're, we've got funding to shoot for three years straight. It, and it's all in the sort of changing geopolitics of the Arctic. And, uh, you know, six hours of social media video. And while I'm working on it, it'll be the first time I actually shoot something that's, let's say, an, a visual archive of a subject mm -hmm. where it's like captioning, bulk captions of everything, uh, you know, collect, collect text, collect video for social media. And so it, it, it pretty much is, is almost the fruits of all these things I learned. It, it, it's almost like a comedy channel when I think of that moment. See, I was in Toronto and I flew to San Francisco. I found the ad for Ken Light's course in the back of the MPPA News Photographer magazine. And I remember getting there and it was like, Everybody was local and I had like traveled. And for me, it was like, because there was nothing like that in Canada. I, I'm quite good friends with Ken and his wife now. They're, they're pretty fantastic, actually. They're great people. Well, my last question, which I ask each guest, is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Stephen Crowley. Stephen Crowley, first, because I'm helping him edit what I'm hoping is going to be a book. And second, because uh, Stephen had, has covered, he just retired from the New York Times. Uh, he was in their Washington bureau. And Stephen has photographed politics in Washington, D.C. since Reagan. Hmm. He started his career covering West Palm Beach in Florida, covering early politics, I believe in the 70s, as a photo tech came to Washington and has covered politics and ended his career covering West Palm Beach with the current president. Wow, that's an amazing range. Send me an email and I will connect you to Stephen. He is a great person, tons of wisdom, and he shot manual focus. I'm going to give you a couple of secret details you can ask about him. He shot manual focus all the way to the end of his career, even with autofocus cameras. Wow. He talks about an era when, you know, the newspaper would need a portrait of the president and he'd call the press office, say, when Reagan was president, hey, I, you know, we need a, sure, come by in an hour and a half. <laughs> Things have changed. Things have changed. Um, he also 
is also that photographer that breaks genre. He's not just a, he's not like a, and this is, I'm not speaking disparagingly of wire photographers because they have very skilled and there is a very important role for what they do. But he's definitely the kind of guy who would like shoot medium format film in the digital age for just to tell the story in a different way. And he really is probably one of the best political photographers in the history of this oh, country, if not the world. Yeah, I would love to talk with him. So, yeah, put me Send in touch me an email, I'll connect you. Well, man, thank you so much. It was really uh, a real pleasure to Sorry talk Sorry for all you. the delays and stuff. Just crazy times. Thanks to Louis for coming on the show. You can find out more about him and his work by visiting louispalou.photoshelter.com. And some of you may not know that I have a YouTube channel where I discuss different aspects of photography from lighting, composition, and a whole lot more. I do this with the help of listeners that submit their images to the Candid Frame Flickr pool. It's an opportunity for us to see each other's work and provides me a way to discuss my ideas and approaches to photography. You can check out the TCF Flickr pool and our YouTube channel by clicking on the links in the show notes and the website. And my new book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. If you feel stuck or are struggling with making good images on a consistent basis, this book is for you. I believe it can and will help you to learn a new personal way of seeing. You can order the book today. And when you place your order from the Rocky Nook website, use the promo code PORELLO40 to receive 40% off the list price. Check out the website and the show notes for the link. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frame, sign up for our mailing list and you'll receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, please take the time to write a review in the iTunes store as it helps our ranking and helps spread the word. Thanks to Jerry Babuska and Brother Ray from the U.S. for their five-star reviews. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Stefan Berl, Paul Johnson Edwards, Matthew R. Jolly, Gustavo Mirabil, and Jeffrey Nissler for their recent contributions. I can't thank you enough. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download the Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. Download it today. You'll find it where everything else is in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>